So today I'm going to start by asking Nancy to discuss foundational therapies. Thank you, Dr. Kuda. My name is Nancy Brown. I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner and been working in obesity medicine for the last 15 years. And it's my pleasure to be here today. So, um, and I appreciate Dr. Kuda's reference to the clinical practice statements of um, that are all published in Obesity Pillars, and I would refer you to these uh, for greater detail. Um, I'm going to just go over a few of these points um, lightly, but there's much more detail found there. So foundational therapy for children and adolescents, and frankly for all patients with a disease of obesity, is intensive lifestyle therapy and the assessment for weight-promoting medications. And these therapies are should be looked at by the practitioner for their patients on every visit um, and reevaluated because things change over time. Intensive lifestyle therapy really um, is uh, not particularly a therapy for obesity, but a foundational health-related uh, uh, concepts that will help the patient um, utilize the rest of the therapies well. Intensive lifestyle therapies refer to um, finding, uh, uh, optimizing diet choices and what that works best for that particular family in a variety of ways, either physiologically, but also socially, um, culturally, um, financially, so that each patient will be different, but finding what works best for them and promotes health is certainly a foundational component as is activity. Activity is vital for any child and adolescent um, to uh, promote, has many health benefits. And again, finding what works for that particular child and family that can be used is uh, a basic part of our care. I'm gonna turn my attention now to weight promoting medications. The second thing that I- Well, before we go there, I think it's safe to say mm -hmm. that um, when we discuss, we're discussing dietary and activity modifications, we want to discuss those in all pediatric patients, regardless of whether of what their uh, uh, weight status is. Mm -hmm. These are important things to discuss. We know that um, nutritional uh, management in this country is overall pretty poor, um, and it's not unique to the disease of obesity. It is very important for the disease of obesity but not necessarily um, going to result in large changes in outcome. With that, let's move on to weight-promoting medications. Exactly. Thank you, Dr. Kuda. Weight-promoting medications, we've now come a long way in, in our knowledge that some medications have a side effect of adding weight, um, adding weight. Some are more weight-promoting than others. Some are weight-neutral, and of course, there are some which we'll talk about later that um, are weight reducing, and but that when we're assessing, every, every patient should be assessed for what medications they're on. And first line approach would be to try to never start a weight promoting medication. If one has been started, then looking to see if it um, can be replaced with another, and if it can't be replaced with another, to see about starting an additional weight mitigating medication. Um, this is something that every practitioner can do in any setting uh, that they see their patient and should be done on an ongoing basis as these things change. Oh, that is great. Thanks, Nancy. 
And let's move on to what we call in the paper shared decision-making, which is a really important thing to do, especially with our families and kids. Dr. O'Hara, do you want to talk to this? Sure, absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Kuda. And Nancy, I would just add that when we're thinking about the intensive uh, lifestyle therapies at foundation, they apply also when we're thinking about shared decision-making. So that's a shared decision, whether it's talking about nutrition, activity, or additional advanced therapies. And so I think when we're talking with our families about um, shared decision-making, it really is for our job is to really educate the families about the disease of obesity that is a chronic disease that's going to require um, ongoing monitoring, as Nancy stated, as things evolve and change, as children grow and their lives change, their stressors may change, and that may change our treatment plan as well. But I think it's incumbent upon us to approach it like any other disease where we're going to address the severity of the disease in front of us, not a timeline necessarily, and really sharing the data that we now have, which is much more robust in the last five years or so, and saying if we have this therapy, intensive lifestyle therapy, the data shows two to five percent may expect a one to three percent BMI declination, and then thinking about the advanced therapies such as anti-obesity medications or metabolic bariatric surgery, and then having that open discussion with families to really see where they are, meeting them where they are, knowing, acknowledging that they may have already tried intensive lifestyle therapy and feel stuck. So our job is to really provide that information so that they can process, and then together we make the decision on how best to move forward. Yeah, I think that's really important, and, and we owe it to our patients to be honest with them, to also approach what we're doing as the specialists in taking care of these very complex patients, but to not hold back, to share with them that it's important to treat the patient, that we don't have to go step by step by step, that there's no known benefit to waiting to do one particular treatment before moving on to another. And just let the patients really make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's uh, talk a little bit about off-label treatment. Nancy, uh, Nancy or Ms. Brown, we should say. Ms. Brown, yes. Thank you. So off-label, um, we, we are pa pediatric providers, and this is a, a concept that's very, um, very well understood by pediatric providers that um, just a little background the Food and Drug Administration the FDA um, is a government agency that's charged with um, looking at drugs um, medications and other things but for today I'm talking about medications that are brought to them for approval and they're brought to them with the results of uh, clinical of um, clinical trials the FDA looks at that and decides whether that the data shows that they are approved for safety and for e efficacy. So with very rare exceptions, none of them will be seen in general clinical practice, all the medications that, most provi that providers prescribe will be approved for safety and for efficacy for a certain indication. So if the clinical trial looked, for, uh, for example, at an obesity drug, and it was approved for safety and efficacy for the indication of um, uh, diabetes, for example, then that's how it's labeled. But, it's, but all of them are labeled uh, with FDA approval for safety. Why, you might ask then, well, why don't we just do more trials and do them for efficacy for obesity or another indication. And the reason for that is, quite frankly, money. Most of these cost millions of dollars, literally, to get through. Uh, 
the applicant is under no obligation to look at other populations. And so pediatrics is one population that is rarely studied, but it's not the only one. Patients with psychiatric disease, patients with pregnancy, pregnancy, mm-hmm. um, advanced age, being over 50. <laughs> um, there are many groups that are not studied. And so in pediatrics, we are quite commonly prescribing medications off-label for indication, and that's the phrase we really need to use. This is not illegal, it is not um, immoral, it has not been studied for that indication, and we use clinical, our clinical judgment and clinical practice guidelines to guide us in our care, and this is standard. Yes. And it's not unique to obesity. Not unique to obesity, and many drugs that we have used from the beginning of our careers in taking care of children were never studied, and we commonly use them. And our uh, um, obligation to the patient is to explain this Mm -hmm. in as best we can and to also go through any particular side effects they may have from the medication, so they're just so they're fully informed. Okay, so the last um, year, two years, we've seen um, some new medications hit the market which have really made a big difference in how we take care of kids now. We've got, we've got things available that we just didn't have before. And we have more information on surgery, metabolic bariatric surgery, and um, its place for the child and adolescent. So um, I'm gonna ask Val, Dr. O'Hara, to make some comments now on pharmacotherapy. Yeah, I think this has been an exciting last few years, and this year in particular, as we've obtained FDA approval for some of the combination medications that we've been using sort of off-label, as Nancy was just talking, in terms of fentramine and terpiramate, that now the, the combination medication is FDA approved for ages 12 and older, as well as many of the two of the GLP-1 agonists that are now available for use for the indication of obesity and not limited only to diabetes, which we knew was approved for children age 10 and older, but now to really have access to those for the indication of obesity. And I think um, when we haven't had those opportunities to use, that really comes back to a little bit of bias and stigma around obesity, and it goes to the comment about off-label medication use as well. I think we didn't have hesitancy uh, for using off-label indications for other diagnoses in pediatrics. So I think having that conversation with our families and patients really sends home the message that we're taking care of this disease in and of itself and having more of those tools has been vitally important. So, you know, um, semaglutide and liraglutide, fentramine to pyramate, those have been game changers as we approach children with much more opportunity to have efficacious care. Yeah, I agree. And I think that we have um, quickly uh, revolutionized our care of these patients. We've been um, aided by uh, different associations, societies that have come forward in in support of treating children and adolescents. Of course, the OMA supports this. We are, you know, a very um, treatment forward uh, uh, type of association. The AAP CPG clinical practice guideline has also been um, uh, a great uh, step forward as compared to two, the 2007 guideline. We, uh, the, uh, the AAPCPG is now promoting early treatment mm-hmm. for the disease of obesity, mm-hmm. including pharmacotherapy. Correct. And I think the, that um, with, with, the, with that guidance, 
with the uh, instructions that we've tried to try, are trying to provide through our CPSs, our clinical practice statements, and our further publications in obesity pillars, that we're trying to give, we're trying to put the tools on the table for providers to use to make it a little easier because there are a lot of nuances to treatment. We've tried to cover some of them today. Um, one of the particular nuances that we do discuss in uh, the CPS and um, also review in, in our paper and our infographic is the concept of trying to tailor treatment towards the presentations of the patients. Great. So Dr. O'Hara, would you like to That's a discuss great, that? That was a great opportunity to really help us learn how we are working together with the family, but our responsibility is trying to elicit that information and the importance of our history um, with our families and asking the right types of questions to lead us down that path. Um, as we stated before, we're going to always be screening for co-occurring obesity-driven diseases. Oftentimes that will guide your treatment as well. So as I explained to families, if a patient has insulin resistance, prediabetes, that may lead me down the line of a metformin or a GLP-1 agonist. If we're asking for questions around eating patterns and we see some binge eating patterns or compulsive eating patterns, that may help us guide to a different medication, to pyramate or Contrave or those types of medications. So it allows us to sort of tease out a sort of phenotype of the patient um, and help increase our likelihood of having better outcomes. And acknowledging with the families that obesity is complicated and has many redundancies and pathways and oftentimes a monotherapy is not going to be sufficient and we need to hit all of those different areas of dysregulation. And in my experience, when we can address those dysregulations, if a child is struggling with binge eating, intensive lifestyle therapy alone, they're fighting against their physiology. And if we can correct it, and I make the analogy with asthma, if you're wheezing and you're using your inhaler 10 times a day, I need to provide more for you mm -hmm. in order to allow you to do the things you want to do. And the goal of treatment of obesity is to allow these children to have improved quality of life and be able to do whatever they want. And when we look at the Action Teens paper, for example, the, the adolescent shared that their biggest struggle was not being able to manage their hunger. Mm -hmm. But the PCP's view was that they weren't motivated mm -hmm. and weren't following healthy dietary recommendations. But if this child is struggling with this pathology, this is the trigger that we're eliciting from the child. If we fix that, then everything else tends to fall into place and we see much more success. Because I think what you've just alluded to, uh, doc, Dr. Hare, is that a very important key point, which is, you know, we're talking about obesity today, but really obesity is the downstream effect of the problem, which is energy dysregulation. The body has a very, very unique energy regulatory system, and when that works well, that, you know, that takes into account a lot of these components. When and for reasons that we don't completely understand, but we think inflammation and chronic stress has a lot to do with this, then those pathways can get damaged. It can get damaged at any different points along the way. And so medications targeted towards one point that we used to think didn't work, actually we're targeting the wrong place. And so we're, we've got a lot to learn, but we've come so far in the last few years. So this is a real, we all have to start with the physiology, which we didn't understand this Point in our schooling. We're still learning, I think. We're yeah. still learning. I, I think that one of the things that is really exciting is that 
we are now treating kids and they're having good outcomes. Mm -hmm. They are as responsive or more responsive than adults. And we're creating so many more years in a child and an adolescent's life of improved health okay. that to do nothing mm -hmm. is really not stepping up to use the skills we have. And I think that in the long run, we're going to see how important it is to treat children as early as possible. We don't have to wait till they're 12 just because medications are approved at 12. That was a result of the limitations of a trial. Correct. We need to clinically assess the child, make a decision based on the child, not the child's age, not the child's family situation. The, we need to assess the disease we're treating, and that should be the first and foremost thing we assess and move out to treat. We do manage all the other problems because that's what we do as pediatricians, as nurse practitioners, as people who care for children. That's what we do. But first and foremost, we are treating the disease of obesity. Right. And that speaks to the need for advocacy for equal access to those medications. I think that still represents, sadly, a huge barrier. But we now have data to support those mm -hmm. asks and that need. And, and really, that patient's voice needs to come forward. And, and I'd like to also speak to the those that might counter because of not understanding the disease and, and the effects of the medications well. You know, but we don't want to do any harm. And I think it needs to be very clear that there is physio, you know, Dr. O'Hara and I have a paper that shows that, you know, as, as young as two, I think, was the lowest on our, mm -hmm. children have comorbidities, physiological comorbidities. And that's one thing, their, their body is already in trouble. But anybody that's ever taken care of one of these children who has the disease of obesity, who has heard their stories, who has heard their discrimination, who has heard their, just what that life is every day. You know, leaving children in that kind of a situation, frankly, I think is irresponsible. Yeah. We have to help them. Right. We yeah. have tools and we have the knowledge and we have far more data than we ever had before. Um, so really our job is to educate our families, our colleagues, the payers and the public, we call it our six Ps, um, oftentimes to really move that needle forward. Um, so it's uh, important upon us to not only treat them, but to do our best to, to educate our colleagues about the safety and need of providing these therapies. I'd really like to thank both Ms. Brown and Dr. O'Hara for this absolutely invaluable conversation. And I'll also like to recognize that there are other members in the Obesity uh, Medicine Association who have contributed to all of the publications that I have um, mentioned previously in this podcast. And it's through the hard work of all these people who have dedicated their lives to the care of children that we're coming as far as we're coming, as quickly as we're coming. So thank you. Thank you, ladies. Thank you thank so much. Thank you, friends.